free food for thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Joe. And I'm Melanie. And today we're excited to be sitting down with Robert Dry, an international relations professor at New York University, who is here with us today at Claremont McKenna and here this fall as a Podlick Distinguished Fellow. Before entering academia, Dry began his career at the U.S. Department of State as the Judicial Assistance Officer and served as a U.S. Foreign Service Officer in the Middle East, East, and Southeast Asia. As an academic, his research interests include diplomatic studies, the Persian Gulf, and U.S. foreign policy in that region, in addition to both public and private international law. So we like to start off these interviews um, asking our guests to describe an inflection point in their personal lives or careers, a time when they really had to make a decision and pivot to the next thing they were going to do. Could you share an inflection point with us today? Sure. Uh, My sort of like the issue that often confronts students is uh, what major shall I pursue? (laughs) And I was very, very involved in, and actually quite good in the areas of mathematics and science. And to a certain degree, I had got lost in that world. But I was being, uh, at the time, uh, the Vietnam War was uh, at full tilt. In fact, I graduated from high school in 1969, which is the same, well, it's, uh, it was a very difficult year. And then um, a little bit later, in 1972, my oldest brother was killed uh, in Vietnam. He was, uh, name was Spence Dry, um, and he was leading Operation Thunderhead, which was a black operation, um, to, um, was the last attempted rescue of U.S. prisoners of war in North North uh, Vietnam. Um, I felt that I was ill-equipped to understand the larger world. And so I decided to dig into um, history, dig dig into humanities, dig into politics, and dig into law. And so it was a big inflection point. Uh, I had done very well, I think, on SATs, I think your students don't understand that, but in in the math and sciences area. But I had never really thought that that was where I wanted to spend my career. Mm -hmm. But as it turned out, uh, it it probably was a good thing because I ended up spending a lot of time in science policy at the international level in the Department of State, as well as economics, Mm -hmm. which is has a heavy component of mathematics and and science too. Mm-hmm. So moving forward a little bit, we know that sort of after college, you went into the foreign service after law school, um, if I believe that's correct. And sort of your first posting was in Iran during the 1979. It was in Iraq. Iraq. Oh, Iraq. 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 Yes, during yes. the revolution at the time, correct? Well, it wasn't. Uh, Saddam Hussein was the was the. Um, Revolutionary Command Council, uh, Council Chair, this is, and it was at the very beginning of the Iran-Iraq War, yeah. which started in 1981 and lasted mm-hmm. until 1988. Mm-hmm. So it was to those living in the region, it is considered the first Gulf War. Mm-hmm. To the United States, we can talk about it as the Iran-Iraq War. Mm-hmm. It's sort of an interesting factoid is that my first... 
um, diplomatic title was a second secretary of the government of Belgium mm. um, because it was Belgium that was the protecting power for the United States at the time in Iraq because the United States didn't have diplomatic relations there at the mm. time. Um, I was also consul uh, for the U.S. interest section of the Belgian embassy at the time. And it was a difficult time. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, you know, we were readily, we were often strafed and bombed. Um, but, you know, one of the purposes of a diplomat is not only to represent your government, but also to understand the environment well. So even as a consular officer, I was responsible for providing some in information about what was going on internally in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And I had the window to... Uh, in the visa section, and to American citizens who were being uh, who were living there, oftentimes they were spouses of uh, mm -hmm. former students, Iraqi students, who had come back to Iraq, and the government of Iraq was, was giving them a very difficult time. I also uh, worked on issues associated with refugees and uh, minority communities, mm -hmm. but nonetheless closely watched the very bloody war uh, unfold. Mm -hmm. in 1981 to 1983. Um, and so I guess it, that would obviously be a strange time to sort of be a young professional um, in the Foreign Service. So I guess, could you speak a little bit to what you viewed as the most valuable parts of your experience as a Foreign Service officer, a young Foreign Service officer, and what you sort of viewed as maybe the tougher aspects of this job? Well, um, when you're assigned in the Foreign Service, you're pretty much assigned to a, at least I was in that case, and for most of my career, to assigned to a particular country. Mm -hmm. um, and you are there. You, you, your eyes and ears are trying to understand the country almost to an instinctive level. Mm -hmm. um, and so on weekends when I wasn't working and I would, uh, with a friend, uh, early in that that first tour, I, I would uh, visit as far as as far afield in Iraq as I could. Mm -hmm. um, I returned actually to the United States and studied for the bar, the District of Columbia, with uh, who a lady was to become my wife, uh, Ellen Kerrigan, um, and when. We both finished the bar, and both of us passed, thankfully. <laughs> um, she came and joined joined uh, me in Iraq, and but we continued traveling around Iraq, trying to better understand Iraq. We went. There was a very f relatively famous visit of ours to the marsh area in mm. southern uh, Iraq, the Deltaic region, the Tigris and Euphrates, and we stayed stayed a few days and. Uh, fascinating area, an area where exiles from literally centuries and millennia had gone to stay and live. Mm -hmm. They had their own culture, their own language, um, and it was it was a it was a fascinating time. We would try and understand what was going on. I spent a lot of time in Kurdistan as well, mm -hmm. learning about Kurd uh, Kurdish affairs. Um, they've been much in the news recently, obviously, with regard to the incursion of Turkey into northern Syria. Um, and I actually went to the, I went to the sort of the Mecca for the Yazidi mm -hmm. uh, peoples in Iraq. I spent a lot of time trying to understand the minorities of Iraq. Mm 
actually began studying Kurdish language itself. Mm. Um, you have to learn a lot, and and it is not easy, and it is difficult for families. It's mm-hmm. difficult in many different ways. Um, just just living, uh, it's difficult to find food. Um, we would spend a lot of time going into the market to find food. It was at, at our little mission. We had a uh, a woman who lived in Iraq. I think she was originally from Australia, mm-hmm. um, and she worked with uh, students wanting to go to the United States. Anyway, she, one day she came into my office and she blurted out, um, "There is meat. We have there is meat in a certain market," uh, and and so. A group of people sort of dropped everything and went out and got meat, and then we um, we all made chili and brought chili. And the question <laughs> nobody really knew what meat it was. It was just mystery meat, <laughs> mystery meat chili. But we were all quite happy about it. And we had we had bunker parties. Uh, it was in these small, difficult posts where we were being strafed and bombed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was. Uh, a lot of collegiality, a lot of uh, we're in this together, we work together, and we, and we developed wonderful relationships with uh, U.S. citizens mm-hmm. who, who were expatriates in these countries. Um, and we also developed very interesting relationships with some Iraqis. Mm-hmm. Extremely difficult for us as American diplomats to get to know Iraqis well. Uh, but we found, we found friends mm-hmm. and, and learned from them too. And amongst the the many cities and posts where you were stationed throughout your career, was there one place where you felt you were most successful in that mission of acclimating yourself and really getting to understand the country, maybe because of a personal connection or just a professional commitment to to really get to know a place? You know, uh, I absolutely adored living in Indonesia. And I was lucky to have gone through the full Bahasa Indonesia program at the Department of State um, and I felt uh, near fluent uh, in Bahasa Indonesia. It could get more difficult. You get deeper into the language because then you start getting uh, borrowed borrowed language from Bahasa Sanskrita, um, Indonesian or Javanese languages originally and so forth. But um, I had a chance to get all over the country. I was responsible for energy, oil and gas, mineral resources, electric power. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was able to travel to the uh, to the highlands of uh, what was then called Irian Jaya, which is now called West Papua, um, glaciated highlands. I was able to travel through Sulawesi, Sumatra, um, mm-hmm. and I was be able, able to do it on my own. And occasionally I would escort um, officials from the U.S. Department of Interior who were interested in in the geology and the minerals development, the minerals prospects, new coal seams and status of oil and gas operations. Um, but uh, my wife and I were charmed by uh, Indonesians and we were also able to adopt our second daughter uh, there, uh, Julia Murniati, which means pure of heart, um, who now lives in Boston. And um, our our first adopted daughter, adopted from China, uh, she became perfectly fluent in Bahasa Indonesia. Mm-hmm. She was about two to three and four there in Indonesia. And so those were prime uh, 
language learning <laughs> years. Um, and my wife and I actually felt that we had to go back to the United States for an extended period in order to uh, improve her English language mm -hmm. skills. Uh, her name is Alicia Eiling. Uh, she's now married, and so is Alicia Dry uh, Cohen. Uh, and she lives in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. so. But uh, those were... Uh, uh, when you're in the Foreign Service, you live, you really live in those countries. You, um, the United States is, is close, but it's also very far away. And, um, you, but you, you develop a unique understanding of those countries that I don't think that you would ever get from just academic, uh, ac academic study. It's not, not in any way to, to denigrate uh, mm -hmm. the academic world. In fact, m my mission since graduating is to see how possibly we can draw on the, the marvelous world of academia uh, to help in uh, these practical problems that are, 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 are besetting us. And mm -hmm. just, to, just to mention a little bit about policy, there's a, a former Canadian diplomat who speaks about the so-called new threat set we're oftentimes, I think, blinded now that, uh, that with the old high policy issues of, of, of war and, and uh, those kind of struggles, whereas the new threat set is much more about international health and uh, climate issues and poverty and sanitation and species extinction and mm -hmm. so forth. And those are the new, new threat set. We have to worry about those matters. How we, how are developing countries going to develop? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily this these constant wars that we've seen in in the Middle East. That should not be our focus. Mm -hmm. Um. And so after your last post in New York City, I what made you sort of decide to take a break from the foreign service? And could you speak a little bit about your transition into academia and what that meant for you? Well, I, I was fortunate that my last post in the foreign service was that was like a visiting professor. I was, a, <laughs> I was a diplomat in residence. I was residence at the City College of New York, which is now the Colin Powell School. Mm -hmm. um, and my, while I began formal teaching there, and I taught several subjects, um, mostly about U.S. foreign policy and also mm -hmm. about the Middle East, um, I was also responsible for recruitment into the Foreign Service. Mm -hmm. I'm particularly looking uh, to the extent possible to um, recruit diverse individuals into the Foreign Service. Um, and we want to, uh, one of the missions is to uh, have the Foreign Service re properly reflect, and in fact it's part of our Foreign Service Act, mm -hmm. have the Foreign Service reflect the actual um, population of the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and And so I would visit and lecture, uh, but I would also visit and recruit. So I'd go to job fairs, but I'd also uh, lecture on, on literally mm -hmm. tens of subjects in different universities, and mostly in, in Connecticut, New York, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. Well, there's a lot of universities in those areas. <laughs> mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time at Columbia, for example, um, and a lot of universities would invite us back. But the, the, I was forced. Uh, the Foreign Service is like the military. Mm -hmm. um, and if you have not been promoted to the next higher rank, um, you, uh, you know, it, 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 the, the system 
actually retires you. Uh, you mm-hmm. tick out from the system in terms of time, it, which is the system that's used in the United States military. Mm-hmm. So I ticked out as a senior foreign sar- service officer, which was um, a fairly high-ranking high mm-hmm. uh, military officer. Uh, and, I, and I found it very difficult to... Um, to to transition because the clearly the academic world is a different world from mm-hmm. from our our own. Um, also, the academic world for adjunct professors in particular did not pay very well. Mm-hmm. So I ended up uh, two or three years after uh, after graduation uh, after I'm sorry leaving the foreign service. Mm-hmm. So on on Mondays I would teach at Columbia University. On Tuesdays um, I I would. I would teach at New York University. Mm-hmm. And then uh, on Tuesday afternoon, I would travel to Washington, and I began working in, in back in the Department of State as a rehired annuitant. I did mm-hmm. that for three or four years. It was a very busy time. <laughs> yeah. And we're, we're running out of time, but we wanted to ask the last question that we asked to many of our guests. I'm particularly interested to hear your answer, having been exposed to many different cultures that have different definitions of success and different perspectives on that. Um, but at this point in your life, what would you say is your definition of success and how would you advise students to define success for themselves? Well, difficult question, but in my own case, I believe it's to live a moral life and mm-hmm. and uh, and and a life in intellectual pursuit. Um, critical analysis as opposed to criticism mm-hmm. um, I um, I put I tried to put values above uh, almost all things in in my classes I want students to understand the basics and have a solid understanding of the subject matter mm-hmm. rather than a particular understanding or trying to get a good grade in a class. It's sort of like study of language, which can be extremely difficult and time-consuming, but to the extent that someone can actually become fluent in a language to be able to converse, that's the goal. It's not an A or a B or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's can you use what you know to communicate or to to read? Uh, Those are the kinds of things that I think are important. Great. Well, thank you so much for that. And to our listeners, remember to stay hungry. (laughs) Thank you very much. You bet. Thank you.